This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where Governor Ron DeSantis claims he could ignore the state cabinet when he picks a new boss at the Department of Environmental Protection. Well, it's an executive appointment, and so that's our prerogative, and, and we'll, uh, we'll do it when we want to, and uh, we'll, we'll let folks know about it. But Agriculture Commissioner and Cabinet member Nikki Freed told DeSantis he's wrong. Except, Governor, it has to be go through the uh, approval or denial through the cabinet. Freed says she'll sue if DeSantis tries this power grab. They also clashed over adoption of a new rule to implement House Bill 1, the anti-protest law that allows the state to override any city or county decision to reduce spending on law enforcement. I'm going to remind you of your own words that you said in 2018. I reject the idea that government bureaucrats in a faraway capital could plan our lives better than we can plan them ourselves. Only 17 months till the election. Freed is also calling on the governor to reverse his decision and order the state health department to resume issuing daily reports on COVID cases. They're only doing weekly summaries now. The Sierra Club of Florida issues a scorecard for the 2021 legislative session. It is not pretty. The club is concerned about assaults on the environment and democracy. You know, anything that chills free speech and criminalizes peaceful protesters is, you know, kind of the antipathy of what um, our democracy is about and what our environmental movement is about. Deborah Foote with the Sierra Club is our guest on today's Sunrise interview. We'll also have your calendar of events and the story of a Florida woman arrested for going ultimate commando at a Circle K. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, June 16th. This is National Fudge Day. It's Bloomsday that commemorates the life and legend of Irish writer James Joyce. This is also the International Day of the African Child, commemorating the day in 1971 when more than 20,000 South African students in the township of Soweto took to the streets demanding to be taught in their own language. Police responded by murdering hundreds of protesters. On this date in 1944, a 14-year-old African-American boy named George Stinney was wrongfully executed for the murder of two white girls in South Carolina, becoming the youngest person ever executed in 20th century America. His conviction was overturned, but not until 2014. In 1970, race riots began in Miami, lasted for three days. It was apparently triggered by a dispute between a grocery store owner who was white and black residents of the neighborhood who claimed he was selling them rancid meat. In 1971, there was a race riot on this date in Jacksonville after a 15-year-old black kid named Donnie Hall was shot and killed by a cop. It went on for four days. Police arrested 274 people. And on this date in 2015, Donald Trump rode that gold elevator into history as he launched his campaign for president at Trump Towers. In what's looking more and more like a preview of the 2022 campaign, Governor Ron DeSantis and Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed locked horns at the state cabinet meeting Tuesday. Issue number one, a new boss at the Department of Environmental Protection, an agency that is technically under the governor and the cabinet. Noah Valenstein left the DEP recently. Freed wanted to know when the governor would nominate a replacement so he could be vetted by members of the cabinet. Uh, governor Light to ask for an update on when we're putting forward a nominee for DEP secretary. Um, as I know today, I'm meeting with the interim secretary, but I'd like to know, like I, I had issues with OFR, that we need to make sure that somebody is appointed and accountable to all of us in the cabinet. So just wondering where we are and getting a nominee in front of us to confirm or deny. Well, it's an executive appointment, and so that's our prerogative, and, and we'll, uh, we'll do it when we want to, and uh, we'll, we'll let folks know about it. Except, Governor, it has to be go through the uh, approval or denial through the cabinet. 
Well, I think if you actually look at the Constitution, it says either the cabinet or the legislature, the Senate, the statute said both. But there's a there's an argument that it conflicts and that it would be one or the other. My sense would be the legislature would retain their authority rather than give the cabinet authority. So that would be a live issue potentially um, if we end up with a conflict. DeSantis is essentially claiming he does not need support from the cabinet and can appoint anyone as long as they're confirmed by the state Senate. That's not the way it's been done in the past, and Freed says she will sue if the governor tries to pull off this power grab. They also clashed when it came time to approve a new rule to set up a procedure that would allow the state to overrule any city or county government that tries to reduce funding for law enforcement. This is part of the governor's anti-protest law. Freed says they are trampling the rights of local governments, and she used his own words against the governor. Uh, Governor, I'm going to take a moment to point out that this continues to a disturbing pattern in Tallahassee, bullying local governments into submission. We all support our law enforcement officers and the difficult job that they have to do. But this is straight up hypocritical interference yet again with cities and counties managing their budgets and doing their jobs. I'm going to remind you of your own words that you said in 2018. I reject the idea that government bureaucrats in a faraway capital could plan our lives better than we can plan them ourselves. Now the so-called party of small government is yet again telling government closest to the people what they can and cannot do with their money. So as you vote today, ask yourself, who is really the big government bureaucrat in the faraway capital? I will be a no. Well, I think it's uh, interesting because what what the rule does is it, it says very clearly to the people of Florida, if your municipal government tries to defund law enforcement, we've got your back. We are gonna protect you. We are not gonna allow some rogue local government do insane things like defunding the police, like we have seen massive cuts in other parts of this country where we've seen crime skyrocket out of control. And so, yes, I I don't know what the context of 2018 was. I don't remember people talking about defunding the police. This is something that's happening. It's a very live issue in our society, unfortunately. And I think folks in in Florida should, should rest assured that at the state level, We're going to do everything we can to make sure that you're protected uh, and to make sure that we stand behind the men and women of law enforcement. The sniping continued after the cabinet meeting when Freed's campaign issued a statement calling on DeSantis to reverse himself and order the state health department to resume daily reports of COVID casualties in the Sunshine State, something they stopped doing almost two weeks ago. Freed claims he's trying to hide the fact that Florida ranks first in the nation in the daily average of new COVID cases and fatalities over the past seven days and is second only to Texas on the daily average of people hospitalized with the virus. She says businesses cannot operate safely without transparency and hiding the COVID data doesn't help. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has just labeled the Delta version of the novel coronavirus as a variant of concern. But the governor's trying to downplay any potential impact here in Florida. He met with reporters after the cabinet meeting, but avoided a direct answer when he was asked if the state needs to do more to prepare for the Delta variant. Well, you know, I mean, look, I think the, the, the evidence that we got from the UK is that the vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. And there's been a lot of talk about variants leading up to this. I think it was probably, um, I, I think it gets put out there in ways designed to frighten people. Uh, but the UK study, I think, pretty conclusively showed that this is impact, uh, effective with vaccines. So our situation with vaccine is, you know, the vulnerable population, I would say 85 plus percent, Uh, has been vaccinated. Uh, We have a surplus of vaccines available for folks as we get into where we are now. Remember last year at this time, throughout the entire Sun Belt, 
you saw an increase in prevalence. And so you should expect that this, that whatever the endemic quality of this, and obviously we have way more population immunity, both in terms of infection and in vaccination, whatever, uh, that's, that's a big help, but you will likely see, you know, the Sunbelt is go up. I don't think it's gonna go up nearly like it did last summer because we have so much immunity, but the best thing you can do if you haven't uh, gotten the vaccine, particularly if you're somebody who's older, particularly if you have any health problems, is to, is to, is to get a shot. We have, um, I mean, there are pharmacies, they're, they're all over the place uh, to be able to do it. There is some good economic news for the Sunshine State. Despite the COVID crisis and the economic slide over the past year, Ash Williams at the State Board of Administration says Florida's pension fund is doing better than ever. The uh, uh, Florida Retirement Trust Fund year to date is up uh, an estimated gross 28.65%. That's 99 basis points ahead of target. The fund stands at a record balance of $199.2 billion. That's up $38.5 billion from the beginning of the year. And I think we ought to take just a second and, and look at what that $38.5 billion might mean. Uh, now, with actuarial science, one doesn't take single-point mark-to-market numbers and rely on them. You smooth them over five-year periods so that you don't have radical changes in plan sponsor contributions over time. But the reason I draw your attention to that $38.5 billion is that at the beginning of this fiscal year, Almost a year ago, the plan was underfunded by $36 billion. 38.5 is greater than 36, which has very, very powerful positive ramifications for the health of this plan. And I wanted to thank you and the other trustees and the legislature for your help in moving our actuarial return assumptions in an appropriate direction, being more conservative, more prudent, the legislature for their full funding, uh, and this just illustrates the power of that, that trinity of responsible funding, reasonable benefits, and prudent investment. So headed in the right direction and just wanted to thank you. Ben Watkins at the Division of Bond Financing says the state is flush with money thanks to federal COVID dollars and the Federal Reserve policy known as QE, quantitative easing. The extraordinary has now become the ordinary because what did they do with uh, when the pandemic hit? Uh, double down on QE, unlimited as to, as to amount or duration to instill confidence in the, in the financial markets. So that combined with fiscal policy, so Congress had three different acts over $3 trillion. So what does that mean for the state? Money is raining out of the sky. So we're in a better position financially, not only that, but because of the way you manage the, the pandemic, our economy's been uh, uh, on fire. So our revenue collections relative to estimates are nearly a billion dollars over what we expected to collect, largely because of people want to get out and move and hospitality's returned. So we're ahead of other states where it's, uh, where it's a different story. Um, but because of the extraordinary measures and because of the amount of money that's been deployed under, under CARES Act, then CARISA, and now ARPA, we're in better financial position than we've ever been in before. So the credit story is easy to tell. From a, from a credit perspective, we're in, a, we're in a great place. And State Revenue Director Jim Zingali told the governor tax collections continue to outpace all the estimates. How's the revenue coming in for June? Uh, just like the last four months, uh, amazing. Um, um, I 
quit looking at it. It's coming in so far over forecast every month. I mean, <laughs> there's no story anymore. Um, it's, it's a good side of it. And so it goes in the Sunshine State. The Sierra Club of Florida has issued its scorecard for the 2021 legislative session, and from their perspective, it's rather bleak. The environmental group based its ratings on nine different bills, and there were only eight lawmakers who voted their way on all of them. Representatives Anna Eskamani, Omari Hardy, and Geraldine Thompson were singled out for praise, while Representatives Randy Fine, Spencer Roach, Bobby Payne, and Senator Travis Hudson were held up as examples of how not to do it. And it's not just environmental issues. They also ranked lawmakers on the concept of upholding democracy. Deborah Foote with the Sierra Club says they hope this scorecard gives you an idea of what's happening in Tallahassee without the usual spin. You know, Sierra Club talks about what is necessary rather than what is politically feasible. So this is an opportunity for us to look through the lens of what is needed in Florida and to highlight some of the most important pieces of legislation and where legislators fell on the spectrum of supporting or opposing. So we look at both um, the lead um, environmental issues that came up during the session, as well as some of the critical democracy issues. So our hope is to provide the public an opportunity to see where things landed based on what Florida needs. Now, Sierra has always been in the environmental game. When did democracy become as important to the club as it is now? So many of the things that we work on, um, you know, are often issues that come uh, before the voters. As the legislature has become uh, less and less uh, reflective of the uh, population in Florida and what the population would like to see, and you know, we know there are a number of reasons for that, gerrymandering being one of them, um, you know, and this continuing attack on our uh, democratic systems has really, I think, required us to step to the plate. For so many years, we just took, uh, you know, the mechanisms that were in place for voting, uh, the mechanisms that were in place for protesting, and the mechanisms that were in place for our citizens' initiative to be untouchable. And the last few sessions have shown that there's not a desire to uh, retain equal access to um, the ballot box and and having equal access in terms of voice. So. Those issues have always been embedded in our work, but they were never under such threat that we needed to really come to the forefront. Understood. Now, of course, the, the bills that you opposed on the on the democracy standpoint, this one were House Bill 1, the anti-protest bill, and uh, the other big was Senate Bill 90, the uh, limits on voting by mail. What was it that was particularly egregious about these? So with House Bill 1, um, not only do we feel it's important for everyone to be able to express their feelings through protest, you know, that has been a particularly effective tool that has been used by the environmental community for decades uh, to bring attention to the issues that are harming our environment and uh, issues of equality and justice in, in terms of who participates in our democratic process. So for us, the increased penalties are particularly egregious. Uh, you know, the kind of encapsulating of everyone under the concerns of a couple of bad actors is another. 
Um, you know, anything that chills free speech and criminalizes peaceful protesters is, you know, kind of the antipathy of what um, our democracy is about and what our environmental movement is about. In terms of uh, Senate Bill 90, um, we believe that all of our efforts should be in franchising voters, figuring out ways that we can continue to make voting as accessible as possible. And this moves in the opposite direction, um, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, delivery of ballots. Um, that's going to make uh, things so much more difficult for many of our seniors who may live in congregated settings. I know here in Tallahassee, a lot of people have stopped uh, having faith in our mail system as being something that is efficient and accurate. So people prefer, you know, the opportunity to drop off their ballots to make sure they know that their vote is being counted. Again, we should be doing everything possible to allow for free speech, to allow for peaceful protest and to allow for safe and accessible voting. Of course, the environmental bills are also front and center, but I noticed the, the overall pattern of your assessment of the legislature seemed to be a, a spotting a pattern of green, uh, greenwashing. greenwashing. Yes, that's the term. So greenwashing is when people promote uh, certain things as being environmental achievements, but in reality, they don't do much. When you think about, you know, uh, having a an Ocean's Day or you know, uh, things like that, you know, they're, they're basically fluff and they're not really about the things that we need to do to really transform Florida's environment. And, you know, if you look at our scorecard and look at the bills on the environment that we talked about, that's really what's happening. Um, you know, last session, it was Senate Bill 712, which was called the Clean Waterways Act. Yet it was so full of holes and so weak, uh, it's not going to transform. But people are meant to uh, are, are talking about it in ways that make people think that something's actually being done. And so we're trying to help the public really get into the details and, and to see, um, you know, what the legislature is actually doing. Um, you know, there's been a lot of effort in communities to address climate change. Florida has chosen to basically do nothing when it comes to addressing climate change. So our cities have been in the forefront, you know, adopting, you know, clean energy goals. And what does our legislature do? It then turns around and, you know, puts forth legislation to keep existing pollution in place, continuing to keep uh, natural gas expanding under the guise of renewable natural gas, the use of biofuels, um, which is essentially watering down your dump to bring more methane out, calling that that's a renewable thing because we're never going to run out of trash. Um, and so, you know, basically this session, if there was one thing, it was how can we undercut the legs of local cities who are trying to do right by reducing their, you know, their carbon footprint and uh, do the bidding of the corporate interests to continue to do their business as usual. And after looking over your list of bills, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, did they do anything right this year from the Sierra Club's perspective? I think one important movement was uh, the passage of Senate Bill 100, which has gotten rid of the MCORS program. 
and certainly addressed our concerns with the um, Southwest connector, which would have run straight through Panther habitat. You know, obviously we still have concerns that two other roads are still in play, but it definitely was some meaningful progress. Um, And, you know, we will continue to oppose new roads going into areas of environmental concern. We also were glad to see um, the recognition for the Florida Wildlife Corridor, um, the funding that went towards that. But again, um, you know, this is due to, you know, President Biden's um, America Rescue Plan. You know, these are one-time federal dollars that have been applied to things that really should have been funded by the state all along, particularly when it comes to uh, land conservation. Um, You know, we're still not meeting the requirements in our minds of Amendment 1. You know, certainly we're happy to see the money, but remember, this is a one-time only infusion, and we really shouldn't be thanking the Florida legislature, but the president. You can find the Sierra Club's ranking for your local lawmakers at sierraclub.org forward slash Florida. Time now for your calendar of events. The trustees of Florida International University hold committee meetings at 8, followed by a meeting of the full board at 2. At 8.30, Florida Power & Light holds an event marking the demolition of its last coal-fired power plant. The company will implode a stack and coal chute at the Indian Town Cogeneration Plant. The Office of Insurance Regulation holds an online hearing at 9 on a request from First Community Insurance Company to raise property insurance rates. At 9.30, the Public Service Commission holds a hearing about recovering the cost related to COVID-19 for Gulf Power, Florida Public Utilities, and Utilities Incorporated. The trustees of St. John's River State College meet at 1 in Palatka, and directors of the Florida Development Finance Corporation meet at 2 in Winter Springs. And finally today, a Florida woman is busted for not wearing underwear at a Circle K. Under normal circumstances, they would never have known Kendall Mabry was going commando. But she wasn't wearing any pants either. A clerk and a deputy in the town of Umatilla say Mabry emerged from the bathroom naked from the waist down. And when they asked her what was going on, she told them another deputy had informed her it was okay. The police report says she smelled of alcohol in her car where they found her pants smelled like marijuana. Mabry was charged with disorderly intoxication and released from the county jail after posting a $500 bond. But the deputy had a heart and did not charge Florida woman for going pantsless. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. (laughs) 